I invite you to bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together. Uh, though we're separated by miles and miles, we're together in spirit and in truth on this holy Sabbath day. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon each and every one of us. We ask that the Spirit will lead us into the truth as uh, we claim that promise. Uh, we pray the Holy Spirit will change our hearts as we learn more and more truth that we can trust Jesus even more and more than we do right now. We pray for those who are traveling to houses of praise and worship. Give them travel mercies, please. We ask humbly for angels to be with each one. Remove any uh, forces of evil so that we may truly rest this Sabbath day spiritually as well as physically as you promised, Father. And Father, we pray that you will give us uh, wisdom as we look through your word and forgive us our sins. Father, may we be overcomers and bring glory to thy name. We thank you so much for Jesus, who is so worthy to be praised. And we pray in his blessed name. Amen. Amen. And amen. Well, friends, it has been an amazing thing to see the last, oh, five years. You know how, how things just kind of speed up and speed up and speed up in the world and we see the fulfillment of prophecy more and more. It seems like every moment of every day we hear certain things, we see certain things. And we also, friends, are seeing the pendulum of Christianity swinging hard into the right. It was hard to the left, now it's swinging to the right. And it's amazing to see such a paradigm shift in, cre in Christianity. Though the Bible has predicted this. And so we shouldn't be surprised by it. But many are caught up in the theology of today, as we see in this uh, paradigm shift, uh, and not the truth of God's Word. The result is uh, what I refer to as a rush back to sinful independence, though believing it is true Christianity. And uh, it's sad, very, very sad to see the deception that Satan has over so many who profess to love our Lord. There are many things, aren't there, that appear to be true, right? Uh, they appear to be the true to us, but actually they are false. And, uh, you know, the Bible tells us about that. It warns us about that. Proverbs 14, verse 12, it says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And so God's word is warning us and saying, You know, you of your own mind, you may think it's the right course, but it's actually the way of death. Now, how do we, how do we tell the difference? Well, we've got to rightly divide the word of truth. We've got to rightly understand God's word, and it's the Holy Spirit that leads us in that path. And so we always pray for the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into the truth. But uh, God's last generation, and I believe that we're living in that time, His remnant people are symbolized in Revelation 7, uh, chapter 7, chapter 14 by the number 144,000. It's a, a symbol of God's last day people, God's last day church. And these people have two specific characteristics as noted in Revelation 14, 12. And we're very familiar with this, aren't we, friends? Here is the patience of the saints. That word patience means steadfast endurance. Here is the steadfast endurance of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. 
These are a people that keep the commandments of God, which means they obey all ten of God's commandments. Now, let's think about that for a moment. The first commandment says that we are to have no other God but the Creator. Isn't that correct? Exodus 20, verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And Revelation 14 says that these 144,000, God's last generation, do not commit the sin of independence. And that's the title of, of this study, The Sin of Independence, as we continue on in our the Sin Issue series here. Um, and so, Exodus 20, verse 3, the first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so, God's true people who keep the commandments, they do not commit the sin of independence. And just what is the sin of independence, Pastor Joel? Well, this is at the heart of the sin issue, and so it's the topic of our study, and we'll find out. You see, my friends, I have contemplated uh, and studied this sin issue for over 30 years now. Uh, some in, in, in the movement, some in Christianity for much longer than I. But I've come to the conclusion that the real reason that we as professing Christians stay where we are and, uh, and, and when called, even when we're called by Jesus to separate from sin and apostasy, the reason that we don't is because we love our independence. And Satan feeds that love of independence because he is the originator of it, you see. And so we are fooled into thinking that we can be independent and still be in the family of God. So naturally then, there would be no reason, you see, to, to leave a fallen church. Because you can be independent of their sin and not worry about receiving any consequences. And I will tell you that the Bible calls that a bold-faced lie from the father of lies. But I run into so many professing Christians who, who believe that they are totally dependent upon God and yet, uh, by their actions, in reality they are independent of God and so it behooves us to know the difference. Because being indifferent to it or, or, or ignorant of it uh, will cost any of us our hope of salvation in Christ. So we, we need to know the truth and, and uh, follow the Holy Spirit's leading. Amen? So let's consider this carefully, and we'll start back uh, in our study here. We'll start long ago when God was thinking about creating man. And we're back there, and have you, you know, when we think about that, have you ever considered why God actually made our world? What was he, what was he trying to do when he, he made man, he made this earth? What was he trying to do? What was his purpose in creating our world? and everything in it, you know, including us. Well, Ellen White penned an interesting statement about why God created this world. It really grabbed my attention, and I love this statement, because it tells us something about the true character of our Father in Heaven, and why He's called our Father. It's from a Signs of the Times article, December 25, 1901. And it says, How great the love of God is! How great the love of God is! God made the world to enlarge heaven. He desired a larger family. He desired a larger family. Isn't that a beautiful thought? 
Why did God make this world? He wanted to enlarge heaven. He wanted a larger family of created intelligences. And we know from that statement that in heaven, they have a family. And we, each and every one of us, those who can see me, those who hear my voice, those who know Jesus, if we are God's children, are destined to become a part of that family when Jesus comes back. We'll be a part of that family forever. Sin and death will be no more. And so as we read our Bible about this, we find that in this great uh, family of heaven, each one has his own individual personality. Okay? We, we're created different. You know the old saying about snowflakes. You know, they say that every snowflake is different. Now we can seem very similar, but there's something that's different about it. And that's sort of just a remarkable, I think, miracle by God. I don't know how he can do that. But here we are in this great family of God, but each one of us has our own individual personality. Each person has freedom. But no person, let me clarify, see, some people misunderstand. No person in heaven today misuses that freedom to act independently, doing his own will, contrary to the will of the Creator. All heaven, you see, right now, all heaven, not here on this, this earth, but all heaven is peaceful and in order and has a common thread running through it. You see, in the family of heaven, each person has individual responsibility. Each person, like I said, has freedom. But no one in heaven misuses that freedom to act independently because all are held together as one in God, the Father. And how are they held together? What binds them in this unity? Their perfect unity is a direct, friends, result of the love of God that dwells in each heart. They're held together by cords of humility towards self and love toward one another. That's what Jesus came to show us. That there is this cord of humility towards self and love toward one another. It is the common thread, friends, like I said, throughout all heaven, and one day it will again run throughout all creation. In Matthew chapter 11, we're familiar with these scriptures. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We can't get any rest outside of Christ, friends. Jesus says, I'll be the one. I am the one, the only one that can give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, and notice what he says. He says, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. So Jesus says, I am meek and lowly in heart. The Greek word for meek is the Greek word praos. And it means gentle or mild. That's what it means. You know, tame animals uh, were said to be praos. That's how they described them. They were submissive. They were harmless. And so one who is meek intends nothing but good towards others, you see. And the Greek word for lowly, remember Jesus said, I am meek and lowly in heart. The Greek word for lowly is tapenos, which means humble. So a person uh, humble in his own estimation assigns himself a low position in comparison with others. He esteems others better than himself. And isn't that what the Bible says about God? Isn't that what agape 
that word agape, charity, love, describing the love of God. Is that what that means? That he esteems others better than himself? Let me tell you that he did. He sent his son to die for us. That should tell us that he loves us so very, very much. He esteems. He has the character that esteem, esteems others better than himself. And that, like I said, that's the way the Father is. That's the way Jesus is. He's, he, that's the way Jesus is. He's not proud. He is gentle and humble. And so there is perfect harmony in heaven with each one maintaining his own identity, uniqueness, and function, but with nobody acting independently of his own will. In fact, and I say this very reverently, friends, even God does not act independently, nor did any of his original creation before the fall of Lucifer. And I'll just give a, a few quick examples of what I mean. We, we couldn't create the world, could we? We don't have that ability. Uh, only God could do that. So he created the world. But when he created Adam, did you, I mean, I'm sure you've know, <laughs> noticed this and you know this, God left it up to Adam to give the names to all the animals. He wanted Adam, you see, to cooperate with him in his work of creation. And not only that, but God created the minimum number of people to populate the earth. Did you ever think about that? Why, why did God just make a male and a female? Why didn't he just populate the whole earth right away? Well, he, he created Adam and Eve, and then he told them to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth they were to populate. So God didn't have to, he didn't have to do it that way at all. Like I said, he could have just said, if you want to do something right, you have to do it yourself. Have you ever said that before? <laughs> I'm guilty. I've said that before on, on occasion. So God could have created several million perfect people, but he didn't do it that way. You know, now I suppose all of us who are parents can look back and and uh, think of of many failures that we have made with our children, and and God could have have thought that very thing. But in spite of that, God has never taken that responsibility away from the human family. Think about that. We make mistakes in this world, but it wasn't like that in the beginning, and it will not stay like that forever. So as it was on the earth when Adam and Eve were created, so it was in heaven with the angels. God did not create a, a, a hierarchy. He didn't create a dictatorship. He created, as we read before, a family. But something happened in that family. In Revelation 12, verse 7, we're told that there was war in heaven. There was war in the family. It says there, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels. Now let me tell you something, friends. There, when we're talking about God, not even God acts independently, okay? Because there never could have been a war in heaven if it had been a dictatorship or even a hierarchy with an absolute totalitarian government. There never would have been war in heaven. It never could have happened because God is all-powerful would have immediately destroyed the revolt. Lucifer would have been destroyed immediately. But the reason war happened was because the angels had total freedom of choice. 
And when war broke out in heaven, God could simply have, I mean, he could have simply just banished Satan from heaven on the spot. And, and he would have he would have had to go. But God didn't even do that. What did he do? Well, what God did was he allowed the angels, as far as possible, to decide the issue. Every angel in heaven had to choose what side he was going to be on. And not only that, he then had to be willing to fight for that side. We don't know how angels fight. You know, there are some descriptions in the Bible. Uh, but all we know is that it says war occurred in heaven, and Michael and his angels, meaning Jesus and his angels, fought with the dragon and his angels, meaning, you know, Satan and his angels. In other words... There was no neutral ground. And there is still no neutral ground. Jesus said in Matthew 12 and verse 30, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. And so Jesus here, he's saying the way that it was there in that war, it is, it's the same here. There is no neutral ground in this world. You're on Christ's side, or you're on the devil's side. And so the angels had to choose. And, you know, every single angel had to choose. And God allowed the angels to make up their minds and decide the issue personally. Even after this war, when Satan was cast out of heaven, he was allowed, uh, we read, that to return to heaven to represent the earth at the councils in heaven. You know, in Job chapter 1, God presented Job's fidelity, Remember? And he challenged Satan's claim to represent the earth. You know, Satan did not represent all the inhabitants of the earth. Let's read that. Job chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Notice what it says. It says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheth evil? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? But look at this. Evidently, the angels allowed the devil to come to heaven whenever they had a meeting with the representatives of all the different worlds. He came as a representative of the different uh, of this world, uh, at least he was able to attend, okay, until Jesus died at Calvary, and then that time of tolerance ended. He was no longer allowed. Notice what it says in the book Desire of Ages, page 761. And this is talking about when Jesus died there. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. See that? From then on, his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accuse Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and the defilement of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. 
And so the angels decided that Satan no, uh, could no longer visit heaven as the representative of this earth because after the cross, only Jesus was allowed to be the representative of this planet. And I would ask, are you happy about that? <laughs> Tell you, I'm very happy about that. Praise the Lord. And so we look at the time we're living in, and according to prophecy, there's a judgment going on in heaven. Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, another scripture we're, we're familiar with, those who are prophecy students. It says, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. The prophecy of Daniel, chapter 8, verse 14, we just read, announces the time for the beginning of that special work. And we know, I uh, can't get into it now, but we know that that began in, in uh, the year 1844, October 22nd, 1844, to be precise. The cleansing of the, the heavenly sanctuary comprehends the entire work of final judgment, beginning with the investigative phase and ending with the executive phase, which results in the permanent eradication of the sin issue from the entire universe, from all creation. Now, a significant feature of the final judgment is the vindication of God's character uh, before all the intelligences of the universe. The false charges, you remember, that, that Satan has lodged against the government of God, they got to be demonstrated as utterly groundless. That God is, is not like that. That God is love, as John says to us. God must be shown, you see, to all the created beings. He has to be shown to have been entirely fair in the selection of certain individuals to make up his future kingdom, his family, and in the barring of others from entrance there. It's got to be shown. Now, what's the difference between the two? Well, it has to do with the topic that we're studying. We are now studying about the sin of independence. We have seen that even God does not act independently. The angels of heaven do not act independently. So, when you think about that, why does God need a judgment? It's got to be proven that He's fair, right? Well, did you know that the Bible says that God knew who would be saved and who would be lost from the foundation of the world? You can read it, friends, in your own Bible. Ephesians 1 and verse 4, or uh, Isaiah 46, 10. Uh, it, it, but don't misunderstand, this is not predestination. It's just saying that God knew the end from the beginning. So he knew. But even though God knew that, and he could make a correct judgment because he is God, the angels didn't. They don't know all that. And the inhabitants of the unfallen worlds they don't know all that. that. They don't have all the knowledge that God has, right? So they have to keep records. And they have to review those records. God could do it in a moment. But angels need more time. And God's willing to spend the extra time and effort so all the angels and all the inhabitants of the unfallen worlds can see that the right decision was made in who has been allowed back into the family of God once and for all. Heaven's built, you see, friends, on the principles of love, cooperation, and unity. 
It's always been this way. And it will always be this way through the ceaseless age of eternity. Because that's the character of God. But you know from reading the story in Revelation 12 that there came a time when one of the angels decided that he was going to be independent. It describes it in Isaiah 14. Uh, it talks about it also in Ezekiel 28. And it, it actually briefly describes it in Revelation 1. He began what can be called an independent ministry. Have you ever heard of independent ministries? Hmm? Well, he began an independent ministry. Lucifer began an independent organization, and this was sinful. It was the sin of independence. Because it worked apart from God and his plans and organization. Are you aware, friends, that independent ministry and self-supporting work were never a part of God's original plan? That wasn't a part of his plan. Are you aware that if Christians had always followed the writings of the Bible, that we never would have had such a thing as self-supporting work or independent ministries? These arose, these, these types of things arose as a result of rebellion and the sin of independence that happened within the church. So the faithful had to leave, you see, the fallen church and form self-supporting work and, independent, uh, and be independent of the fallen church. That's where you get independent ministries from and self-supporting work. There was one who came along, you see, remember, in a perfect environment, came along, there was perfect government, and he began his own ministry in competition and opposition to the regular established government and ministry of heaven, which had been in operation for ceaseless ages. We don't know how long. And when that spirit of independence came to this earth, this world entered into the darkness and misery of sin. The first temptation to Adam and Eve, friends, was the temptation to be independent. Look at Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. It says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die? For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Let's consider that for a minute. Let me ask you this question. Can God do anything he wants? Yes, yes someone, someone said yes. God can do anything he wants. He is the law. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? God is the law. The angels are not the law. Adam and Eve were not the law. You and I are not the law of God. We are all bound to the law, which is God, right? The first temptation there in the Garden of Eden was one of independence, claiming that Eve would be able to do whatever she pleased to be a law unto herself, and in so doing she would be just like God. God. The temptation was that Eve would be wise enough. If she ate of this fruit, she'd be wise enough to act independently, knowing good and evil herself without having to depend on God for guidance or anything else. Now, isn't it true, when we think about it in this way, 
that there are still millions of people today professing to be Christians who still believe that lie. Yes, there are. Jesus referred to them as the majority. <laughs> and that's sad, isn't it? It should be the other way around. The majority should be faithful and true and following Christ. But it's not. And so the result was that this earth became a part of the independent of God government. The independent of God ministry of Satan. Which made things more than confusing in this world. And God is not the author of confusion, is he? And so nearly the whole earth became loyal to Satan's independent of God ministry. Now follow me closely here because when you try to reveal a counterfeit, uh, it, can get, it can get confusing since a counterfeit looks so much like the real thing. So those who remained loyal to God then became themselves independent of the rebellion that existed on the earth. On the earth, the great mass of the population were independent from God and were loyal to Satan's independent of God ministry. So those that were loyal to God became independent of that rebellion. But because they were so few in number, you know what they look like? They look like, they look like uh, the offshoot to those who were members of Satan's ministry. You follow me? The people that were loyal to God were few in number. Noah, for example, apparently was alone. The rest of the world was independent of God and was following the philosophy of Satan and his leading and his guiding. But who was really independent? Who was really committing the sin of independence? Was it Noah? No, it wasn't. The whole world was guilty of the sin of independence. They were following the leading of the devil. Noah was the only one that was not independent, which was just the opposite of the way it looked to everyone else on the outside. Noah was the only one that was not independent. He was dependent on God, you see. But because the, there were such few people at that time who were loyal to God, it looked like they were the ones that were independent. The others, the vast majority, looked like they were all united. They were the establishment. They were the church, the true church, right? Jesus told us about the danger of blindly following the majority. I mentioned this a moment ago. It's found in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to salvation. No, that's not what he said. That leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. In Noah's day, there were such few people that were loyal to God, it looked like they were the ones that were the independent offshoots. The others, in the majority, looked like they were all united. They were the establishment. They were the real church. And it's been that way over and over again. That the appearance was the exact opposite of the reality. And so, you know, when you think about that, I'll ask, where do you reside, spiritually speaking? Are you in the majority who look united and established, or are you with a smaller group that holds strictly to Bible principle, such as Noah did? 
You see, my friends, God is in the business in this sinful world of training people and getting them ready for heaven to, to be members of his family. How is God going to get you and I ready for heaven? How do the heavenly beings live and interact up there? Well, they love each other and they have humble cooperation with each other. There's no competition or independence up there. God's plan has always been for humble cooperation. And that's why Jesus, well, think about it, that's why Jesus selected the disciples that he selected. Well, on the outside, it looked like, you know, and for a long time, it looked like that these guys were just the complete competition for who was going to be the greatest, right? Until the cross. But Jesus selected those disciples because they were teachable, and he can read the heart, and he knew that they were humble at heart. It just needed to be cultivated. It needed to be watered by the Holy Spirit. And God is trying to teach each one of us the character traits of humility and submission. And I'll tell you, it, it really doesn't seem easy for human beings to learn the character traits of humility and submission. But I'm going to tell you, we, we all have to learn them or we cannot be saved. Because that's the character of all who, who reside in God's kingdom in his family. And every experience in our life that we go through, the good and the bad, is to instill within us these precious traits of character so that we can fit into the society that Satan forfeited because of pride and independence. You see, pride is the opposite of humility and independence is the opposite of submission. The Bible has a lot to say about submission. It actually does, but we don't like to read it. But I'd encourage you to read it anyway. I mean, I'd, I'd encourage you to start with Romans chapter 13 sometime and really get in and dig into that chapter and hear what the Spirit is saying to you. But none of us can go to heaven if we have a proud, independent spirit. We'll never be admitted. We have to learn the lessons of submission that are given in the Bible. Submission... The Bible talks about submission to godly leaders in the church, submission to godly leaders in the family, submission to a righteous civil government, submission to righteous employers. All of that is taught in the New Testament. Notice I said godly leaders, godly leaders in the family, godly leaders in the church, righteous government. And so when they pass a a law that infringes upon our worship and we want to keep the commandments of God, that's not a righteous law, is it? But we still need to learn to be submissive. Revelation 14 verse 4 tells us that the 144,000 are people that have learned the lesson of submission. It says, these are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Notice that they are followers and they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They are in submission to the land's authority, period. Whatever he says, they do. Wherever he goes, they follow. And they will follow him. They don't just submit until they go so far and then say they're not going any further because they just don't feel that way. They just don't like it anymore. You know, let me ask you, friends. Have you ever studied the Bible with someone and they accept everything 
You're presenting, you're studying, you know, all about the Bible. You're studying foundational principles. You're studying, you know, doctrine. And, and, and they accept everything until you get to some doctrine, let's say, some truth that cuts so hard across their practice that they say, you know, I've accepted everything so far, but I can't agree with that. Or they'll say, you know, I'll study that out. I get that actually quite a lot. I appreciate that, Pastor. I'll study that out, and I'll let you know. And then I'll get back with them, and they'll say, yeah, I'm still studying that out. But they really never do, friends. Or they just outright reject it. I've seen it happen with so many things, with tithing, with Sabbath, with State of the Dead, uh, you know, prophecy, jewelry, health reform, just all different kinds of things. Different people will go to a certain point, and then it cuts so hard across their belief or their thinking or their practices, they say, no, I can't go any further. But, friends, these 144,000, there are people that follow the Lord wherever He leads. And I want to ask you, do you want to be a person like that? If you do, then you have to learn the lesson of submission. The 144,000 are the people that follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They no longer commit the sin of independence. However, if you look at the first part of verse 4 of Revelation 14, you'll see that the 144,000 appear to be independent. Just like it was in the days of Noah. It says, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, what's that talking about? Well, a woman in Bible prophecy represents a church. And a, a, a whorish woman or a harlot represents a fallen church. A virgin represents a church that's not defiled with false doctrines. And so the 144,000 are those who have not been defiled by fallen churches. They have not been defiled with what the Bible terms Babylon, who is the great harlot that's defiling the whole world, as you can read in Revelation chapters 14, 17, 18. Um, these people are not defiled with Babylon. They are not defiled with false religion. They are not defiled with false religious philosophy that is predominant from man-made traditions that conflict with God's Word. They will be thought to be a crazy, fanatical offshoot that is independent from... The whole rest of the world. That's what this final battle is all about. Between the beast and God's people. But the reason they're independent of the rest of the world is because the world is on the wrong side. They're on the wrong side. They're loyal and faithful to God and they are in the minority because they're walking that straight and narrow, not the wide gate. They are considered virgins because they've reached the point where they follow Jesus wherever He goes, choosing no longer to sin. They have, by the power of the Holy Spirit and in, co in cooperation with, with the Godhead, they have perfected characters that resemble Christ's character perfectly. They'll no longer commit the sin of independence. In this world, you know, very often the reality is exactly the opposite from its appearance. And from the beginning of sin, those who have remained submissive and dependent upon God have found themselves out of step and independent from the world. Jesus said that. He said the world loves its own. Right? That's going to persecute those who follow Christ just as it persecuted Him. 
And like Noah, when the rest of the world remained independent of God, can you imagine what people said? They said, that man Noah, he's alone. He's so independent of our authority. He's an offshoot extremist. He's an alarmist. What's this flood all about? Rain? What's rain? It's never rain. I don't even know what that is. But actually, Noah and his family were the only ones in the world that were not independent. They were dependent on God and they were loyal and faithful to Him. In the book of Numbers, here's another example. The experience of the, the organized church in the days of Moses is recorded. And it shows examples of this sin of independence. Let's look at Numbers chapter 12. Now this is the time when Israel spied out the promised land, if you recall. Let's look at Numbers 14, actually. Maybe that's a misprint. Anyway, verses 2 to 4. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they stood... Excuse me. And they said one to another, Let us make a captain. Verse 4, this is a key. They said, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Let's make a captain. And so what's that saying? They're saying, Let's select another leader instead of the one that God had chosen for us. Remember, Caleb and Joshua they remonstrated with them and tried to talk some sense into them because they were making the wrong decision. You read about that in verses 9 and 10. And the situation got really heated. Now stay with me on this, friends. Caleb and Joshua became independent of that organized church and the people in the organized church said, this Caleb and Joshua are not accepting the leader that we are choosing, and they are not accepting the decisions that we are making, so we're just going to disfellowship them. And do you know how they were going to disfellowship them? You know how they disfellowshipped in Israel in the Old Testament? Well, they said, we're going to stone you to death. That was disfellowshipping. But here's the question. Who was right? Was it those who remained loyal to the apparent church and the apparent church organization? Or was it those who appeared to be independent and were therefore going to be disfellowshipped? What was the difference between the two? One was independent of God and one was not. If you go a couple of chapters later, in number 16, Moses himself is accused of being independent. And Aaron also. You see, they had at that time a, a representative form of government in Israel. And a representative church government is when you have a, a whole bunch of churches joined uh, you know, together into a sisterhood or a conference, and they each select delegates to meet and make decisions for the entire sisterhood. You had all the tribes of Israel, and they had their own representatives, see? And, and that's all a conference is supposed to be, really, but today it's just a system that appears to be representative, 
But all too often, church decisions are made by committees instead of the membership delegates. But we give the appearance of that. It's kind of like in our country, the United States, when they have uh, elections for president. We think we're electing the president. More times than not, we really aren't. It's been decided. But let's get back to this. The children of Israel had a representative government. They got together in this meeting with 250 of the leaders. These were leaders or, or, or representatives of the people, of the different tribes. And it says in the Bible that they were men of renown. I mean, that means they were, they were people who were famous in the congregation. The, the children of Israel looked up to these men. Have you ever heard the saying? I'm sure if you're an Adventist, you've heard this. That when the leadership gets together, it's just like the voice of God. Have you ever heard that? And that's what the children of Israel thought too, you see. They had the leaders, and these leaders accused Moses and Aaron of being independent from the church and taking too much upon themselves without the approval of the church, of the church's authority. Okay? They said, you know, God has chosen this church, and surely when the entire church, through its appointed representatives, decides on something, it is the voice of God to the people. And they question, how can it be that Moses and Aaron don't submit to the authority of the church and the leaders of the church? How can Moses and Aaron justify their independent ways? Actually, they were not independent. They were the only ones that were really dependent on God. The only leaders. The whole church had become independent of God, you see. And think about this. Is a church that is independent of God the same as a church that is fallen or in apostasy? Chew that one over a little bit. You'll find that it's true. But the appearance, again, was deceptive. The church body of Israel had become independent of God. The ones who were accused of being independent were the only ones who remained loyal and true to the God of heaven. Well, that could never happen again, could it? Yes. I mean, as faulty as the church may be, it's going through, you know, it's going to go through all the way, right? Well, you know, that's an easy question. If you have a right understanding of who and what the church is, which there are thousands and thousands of people who don't understand it. But anyway, in number 16, the whole church of Israel was united against Moses. And it says in number 16 and verse 19 that they all came together against Moses at the door of the tabernacle. Obviously, then, God would accept their decision since, I mean, the whole church decided it, right? You know, there are some people today that are still like that. They think that if the whole church decides something, obviously it has to be right. Obviously, God is speaking and you must be in harmony with it, right? So the church of Israel wanted new leadership and God accepted it and they had new leadership. Is that what happened? That's not what happened. God did not choose other leaders. And God did not submit to the pressure of the whole church. He said, no. He said that since these people were in rebellion and unrepentant, they would die. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says they did die. And as I've studied this topic over and over, the thought occurred to me that there is no committee, there is no conference, 
There's no general conference, no human authority or power on earth that has the authority to change one principle of truth. Not one. Not one standard of God. Truth is not subject, friends, to an up or down vote by the congregation, by delegates, by committees, by man. Truth is truth. The Antichrist power, that is the beast power, thinks that something God has said and done, they can change. But God says, no. God would not change it for the devil. He would not change it for Cain. He would not change it for Korah, Dathan, and Byram here in Numbers. He would not change it for Judas, nor the Catholic Church or, the Pro or Protestantism or Adventism. God's not going to change the truth for anyone, friends, as He is the truth and He cannot change. That's what the Bible tells us. Look at Matthew, or excuse me, Malachi 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. John 14, 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And thank God, praise God, that he doesn't change. Or else our faith is as holding sifting sand. It goes through our fingers. But God is seeking for, for cooperation, friends, of his fellow workers on earth, but he has not abdicated the throne. Nor will he allow any church, any conference, any general conference, anybody or anything to assume a kingly power over his true heritage, his true followers, which is his purchased possession. He bought them with his blood. And when we follow down through the Old Testament, we see this principle demonstrated over and over again. I mean, we could look at Elijah. We took a, a, a close look in this series at David and Saul didn't we? We could look at Jeremiah. We, we could look at Hosea. We could look at Amos. The Bible has so many examples of this played, oh, played out over and over and over again. But I want to take a quick look at the ministry of John the Baptist as an example before we close this study here this morning. In the Desire of Ages, page 132, I want you to notice something that it says about John. Let me drink here. Desire of Ages, page 132. John had not recognized the authority of the Sanhedrin by seeking their sanction for his work. And he had reproved rulers and people, Pharisees and Sadducees alike. Yet the people followed him eagerly. The interest in his work seemed to be continually increasing. Though he had not deferred to them, the Sanhedrin accounted that as a public teacher he was under their jurisdiction. Well, how arrogant. <laughs> well, you could kind of understand it, couldn't you? I mean, the Sanhedrin was the, the highest earthly authority in the church. I mean, why hadn't John sought their sanction for his work? Because the Sanhedrin had tried to assume prerogatives and authority that belonged to God alone. 
Thus they made themselves independent of God, and John the Baptist didn't join in their independence by submitting to them. Look at Matthew 3, verses 7 and 9. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, this is John the Baptist speaking, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. You see, they thought because they were descendants of Abraham that they were a part of the true church, no matter what. And John said, don't even think that. And look what he said in verse 10. He said, and now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So John says the fact that you are the literal descendants of Abraham, and the fact that you have the right name, the fact that you're an Adventist, and a fifth generation Adventist, and you have the name Seventh-day Adventist, and you call yourselves you know, the, the remnant, it doesn't ensure that you are going to endure to the end. You see, friends, the tree's not saved because it has the right name. It's only saved if it has the right fruit. The tree that is dependent upon God is the only tree that produces fruit. And when the man that has an orchard goes out you know, to inspect the fruit, he doesn't look at the name of the tree to decide which tree he's going to save, which tree he's going to cut down. He looks at which ones bear fruit to decide which ones to save. I do the same thing in our garden. If a tomato plant isn't producing tomatoes, I get rid of it. It's wasted space. It's pulling nutrients out of the soil, robbing them from the plants that do produce fruit. Notice this from the book, The Desire of Ages, page 107. The axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, which we just quoted out of chapter 3. Notice what she says. Not by its name, but by its fruit is the value of a tree determined. If the fruit is worthless, the name cannot save the tree from destruction. John declared to the Jews that their standing before God was to be decided by their character and life. Profession was worthless. If their life and character were not in harmony with God's law, they were not His people. Did you catch that, friends? If their life and character were not in harmony with God's law, they were not His people. I wish more people would truly understand this, for it, it really, really is just that simple. The Jewish people in Christ's day, and today too, thought that they were the grand exception to the sin issue. They believed that they were heirs to the promise God made to Abraham just because they were related to him. And it really isn't any different today in Christianity. God does not change. His promises are still conditional upon obedience to His law. It was true in Eden. It's true today. 
It, was all, it will always be true. You don't get a vote on whether it's true or not. Truth is true. If the Baptist Church, the Methodist Church, the Episcopalian Church, the, the Catholic Church, or the Seventh-day Adventist Church is not in harmony with God's law, they are not His people. They're not the grand exception to the sin of independence, just as the Jews were not. As we looked at all this, what does this all mean to you and me? Well, friends, it means simply that every church, every conference, every ministry, every institution, every family, every person that becomes independent from God will be cut down, period, and thrown into the fire. There's no grand exception when it comes to the sin of independence. Does this mean that God does not have a church? Well, of course not. God does have a church. He's always had a church. The church is the people that are not independent from God. They love Him. They keep His commandments, just as Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And that's exactly what His followers do. Love, obedience, humility, and dependence are the criteria, not pride and independence. And we're going to have to get this subject straight in our minds, friends, as we come down here the last day. We're going to have to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God and follow the Lamb wherever He goes if we want to overcome the sin of independence and be a citizen with heavenly beings in the family of God. We need to learn submission to the Lamb. And to be a citizen there, we must have the character of those who live there while we live here. How do we, do, how do we attain that? Well, notice what? says in 1 John 1, 7, If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Friends, may we walk in the light. May we be dependently minded, dependent upon God for all things. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much again for this holy Sabbath day and the opportunity we've had to study out of your holy word. We pray, Father, that we will take the things that we've looked at today, we will study to show ourselves approved, comparing scripture to scripture, as guided by the Holy Spirit. And may we be, each one, settled into the truth and be found faithful when Jesus returns. Please continue to be with us throughout this day. Help us to keep this day holy so we may bring glory to thy name. We humbly ask this favor in Jesus' name, for he's so worthy. Amen. Amen and amen.